following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Good to come together as God's church and his people to worship him and to uh, seek God as he ministers to us. Uh, we're looking this morning in Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 20 through through the end of the chapter, uh, titled This Death and Taxes, um, Two Things That Seem to Be Certain in Life. And uh, it's kind of what this uh, passage is about. So let's look and begin reading in uh, verse 22 of Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when, he, and when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to, give, uh, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast the hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Um, this phrase, death and taxes, uh, in English, uh, it means there's uh, two things that are certain. Uh, and as I thought about this, I realized this really only works actually in democratic places, societies, because actually if you're in a monarchy, taxes are not certain. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Right? If you're the king, you may not have to pay taxes. But uh, we talk about death and taxes as being inevitable certainties in our life. Um, so we're going to look at the, uh, that in this passage. But to get some background first, we really need to understand and put ourselves back in Jesus' time and really come to understand how important the temple was uh, in the life of, of every Jew, every Jewish person. Uh, the temple was the very center of their worship. And of course, uh, in each Jewish community, there would have been a synagogue, a local meeting place, kind of like where we gather for church. And they would gather together on the Sabbath uh, in the synagogues, and they would hear teaching and instruction. But all the instruction and all the things that they learned in the Torah told them that that what they really needed to do was go to the temple. And there was one temple in Jerusalem and it was really the center of everything uh, that was uh, pertaining to their worship, right? Everything um, uh, focused and took place and happened at the temple. And in Jesus' time, Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire, across North Africa. Um, many of them lived uh, thousands of kilometers from the, from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, but if they wanted to really worship God, if they wanted to really uh, seek God in them, uh, even though it may, it may take them weeks of travel and, and, and great personal expense. It meant uh, 
taking time off from your work or your job and traveling a great distance. And for some people, this pilgrimage, this became to be known as a pilgrimage, uh, could have been a, a very special and rare event in their life. Maybe only once or twice or a handful of times did you have the, the time and the resources to make this great journey so that you could worship God. So imagine if that's how it worked for us. Imagine if the only time we could go to church is if we could travel all the way to Jerusalem, right? And there are other times we could meet, but it really didn't count as real church, right? It didn't really count as real worship unless you went to the temple. That's how it worked for them. Um, uh, and and, um, and it was, uh, the, there was basically three functions of, of the temp- temple, three ways in which the temple served to facilitate or make it possible for them to really worship God. And the first thing that was important was it was a place of atonement. Right? So in order to deal with sin, if you, if you did something wrong and you knew you needed forgiveness, you couldn't just pray and say, God, forgive me, and poof, it was all gone. It didn't work that way. You needed to take uh, an animal of sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So imagine if you like really messed up, and you know you can't go to the temple for months or maybe years. Right? You carry this guilt. You carry this in, waiting until you can go and offer a lamb or a bull or some uh, form of sacrifice to obtain forgiveness, right? To make wrong, uh, make right what you have done wrong. Uh, the second function of the temple was it was a place you went to offer also sacrifices for thanksgiving and praise. Right? So it was the place where you really, where you could really worship God by offering up these gifts. Now, of course, uh, people could go to the synagogue and they could praise God, um, but but. Offering a sacrifice was really at the heart of what they understood to be worship. And they could only do that at the temple. Uh, and, uh, and they would offer that sacrifice, and then they would have kind of a celebration meal together in God's presence, celebrating God's goodness. So imagine something like a, you know, the family Christmas dinner where you gather and you celebrate. It was kind of like that. But they could only do that at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and and the, the third function of the temple was it was the place where you uh, could really draw near to God uh, for worship and for prayer, right? And and what's remarkable when we go all the way back to Exodus, when 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 God established the tabernacle, which then became the temple, the purpose was it, uh, purpose for it was that God wasn't a God who was going to stay in, in the heavens far away, but God said, look, I want to be in the midst of my people. And to do that, I need to have this holy place, this consecrated space or ground, which is the the temple. And my very presence is going to fill that place. Now, of course, we know, and and the the Jews believe, that uh, God was everywhere present. It wasn't that uh, God wasn't where they lived. But there was a sense in which God revealed himself. He came in a very special way into the temple. So if you wanted to come really close to God, and draw near and pray like right there, you would go to the temple because that's where the presence of God was dwelling. And you would come, uh, and of course, the everyday Jewish person couldn't come all the way into God's presence. There was a curtain that separated them. But uh, they knew that they could get right up almost to that curtain. And just on the other side was, was God himself, God's presence. So 
when you prayed, if you wanted God to really hear your prayers, I mean, there's something about praying knowing, you know, I'm on this side of the curtain and God's on that side of the curtain. And he, he really hears me. And I'm in his presence, right? But again, uh, it, 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 for most, most Jewish people, this was a very rare occasion. This is not something they did every day, or maybe even not even every year. And so the temple was a really big deal to Jewish people. And so we see it in, in many instances in the, in the Old Testament. But one example is Psalms 27.4. Uh, David uh, probably wrote this psalm, and he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. He says, of, of all the things I could ask, this is the one thing that I want more than anything else. Right? What does he say? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. But the temple was a big deal. And he said, if I could get what, if I could just have life be however I wanted, like it wouldn't be a vacation at the beach, it wouldn't be some mansion on the golf course, right? What I long for is just to dwell in the temple near God's presence. So that would be the ultimate. Of course, he couldn't do that. He was king. He had to go fight battles and, and run the country. But he said, oh, if I could just be constantly in God's presence. Right? It was a big deal. Psalms 84.10. Uh, we, we sing songs about this. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He says, man, I would, I would cherish just one day in your temple compared to a thousand any other place in the world. So it's a big deal, and, and so it's, it's uh, no wonder that, uh, or not surprising, that, that the Jewish people uh, thought a lot about the temple, and there was a tax, and in this passage it talks about this uh, two, uh, uh, or half shekel, or two drachma tax, and this tax was paid uh, for the maintenance and care of the temple. And any, any devout Jew, 20 years old and up, uh, was required to pay this tax, uh, annually, once a year. Uh, but for the Jewish people, this was a tax that none of them really complained about. Like, there were a lot of taxes they didn't like to pay. But because the temple was so important to them, uh, this was an easy tax to pay. It was also a pretty small tax. Right? It was fairly cheap. That helped. Uh, but uh, really, almost every Jewish male would, would, would gladly give because it supported the care and maintenance of the temple. Um. So, so we come to chapter 17, and um, in chapter 17, it marks a real turning point, a shift in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been out teaching the crowds. He's been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the crowds. But in chapter 17, uh, it, it turns, and Jesus is no longer focused on the crowds. He is now primarily focused on his disciples, and training and equipping and preparing them. Uh, and, and in addition, he has uh, changed the direction of his life, and he is now focused on Jerusalem. And he's beginning a journey. He's leaving behind Galilee. He's going to be leaving behind the crowds. And he's now focused on his ultimate mission, which is to go to Jerusalem. And, and so he's gathering. It says here that they're gathering in Galilee uh, not to stay there, but they're about to make their pilgrimage with Jesus to Jerusalem. But what's interesting about this pilgrimage is that Jesus is not going to actually worship at the temple. 
right? And he tells us in this passage what his real mission in going to Jerusalem is, his real purpose. And we also come to understand his surprising relationship with the temple, this, this place that means so much to every Jew. Right? And we see here Jesus' unique understanding and relationship of himself to this temple. So let's look at this. Uh, those two themes, first, Jesus' mission, why is he going to Jerusalem? And then secondly, uh, he's not going to worship at the temple. So how does he see the temple and his, his own relationship to it? So first, the real mission, uh, two short verses. As they were gathering, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Uh, Jesus, we, of course, we know, because we have the perspective of looking back, but Jesus' disciples were looking forward, and Jesus warns his disciples, Look, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over it's the first reference to Jesus, uh, not only that would he die at the hands of his enemies, but actually that he would be handed over. He would be betrayed by somebody in their group. Uh, and, and he would be killed. And he would be killed. His mission is not worship. His mission is death. Uh, to, be delivered, to be delivered into the hands of his enemies, and they would kill him. And that, of course, we know was Jesus' purpose in coming to earth. But the disciples were just having a hard time wrapping their minds around this, right? Because I'm sure they were thinking, we're going to Jerusalem, and, and surely this is when Jesus is going to make his big move. Right? He's the Messiah. Peter's just acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. And they've still got this picture of Jesus going to, um, to conquer, to set himself up as king and a kingdom, to overthrow Rome perhaps. Uh, to set up the kingdom of Israel as they pictured it. Uh, and so when Jesus talks of death, of dying, of being killed, they have their, a hard time wrapping their minds around this. And it's not because they don't understand what he means by the words, he will be killed. Right? They get that. Right? They understand Jesus is talking about his death. Um, but they have a hard time understanding how this could be the mission of the Messiah. Right? How, how is it that the Messiah could be killed? Uh, for them, that spells uh, the end of the Messiah, the end of the king. And if there's no king, it must be the end of his kingdom. And so they see Jesus uh, talking here about death and dying as, as failure of the mission. They still haven't grasped that this is actually the reason Jesus came, to die for the sins of mankind. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and after three days, they will, he will rise again. Right? Uh, and it says that the disciples were greatly distressed. They were very sorrowful, greatly distressed about this news. Um, and and uh, what's interesting is that the, the news of the resurrection should have overshadowed the news of death. Right? They should have thought, well, Jesus dies, but he's rising again on the third day. How cool is that? Right? But, uh, but they were not able to uh, grasp the resurrection. They had a hard time understanding how Jesus' death could be the mission, but they couldn't even fathom what Jesus was talking about when he said he would rise on the third day. And that really is the cause of all their distress. Right? Had they really grasped the resurrection, if they really would have understood what he meant by those words, 
they would have understand that the resurrection would change everything. Right? But they, they just couldn't, they couldn't picture that. They couldn't picture how Jesus' resurrection would undo every evil and bad thing in the world. Right? It was not the end, but it was the beginning. It was not the defeat at the hands of his enemies, but it was Jesus uh, ultimately overcoming the greatest enemies of humankind. The enemies of sin, the enemy of death, and the enemy of Satan and the forces of darkness. And they should have seen that resurrection meant not failure, but but final and complete success. That's what what Jesus is talking about here. But of course they um, they can't understand it. Um, and I can kind of relate to them. Honestly, uh, which is easier for us to understand, that Jesus died on a cross or that he rose again? Honestly, I can understand the whole dying on the cross thing because death is a part of our life. Right? Death is a part of our experience. We all have been in touch with it. Um, but how many of us uh, know somebody who's raised from the dead? <laughs> Well, okay, nobody, right? Or maybe on some rare occasion. But even, and, and, and I think God still raises people from the dead, but not permanently, right? Not permanently. Um, so, so resurrection is something that's much harder for us to grasp. It's not part of our everyday experience. And, and so we see the resurrection only by faith. Only by faith that Jesus has done this. Um, and I think like the disciples, it's easy for us to get caught up with grief and discouragement because we only understand death and we don't really get the, the power and importance of the resurrection. Right? We don't get how it changes everything. And ultimately the way it changes everything is what? Do we know? Well, the resur- this is how it changes everything. The resurrection means, in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, if you're in him, you win. Right? We win. Right? We are on the winning side, and victory is ours. I don't know if you enjoy watching sports events, whether it's soccer or track or uh, football or basketball or something, but there's something about watching a sporting event live. right? And you're watching your team, and you're going on this journey with them through the game, and as that clock is ticking down, You hope your team surges ahead and just crushes the other team. But it usually doesn't work that way, right? It kind of goes back and forth. Your team scores, and then their team scores, and you move ahead, and then they move ahead, and that clock keeps ticking. And and as you get closer to the end of the game, like it gets just, like, do you get nervous? I mean, I break out in a sweat. Like, I'm just sweating, and my my pulse is up, and my adrenaline's going, because I'm just not sure if they're going to win, Right? And there's all this stress and suspense, and that's part of what makes, I guess, watching it fun. <laughs> you can give yourself a heart attack, right? Isn't that exciting? Yay! Uh, and it's that suspense, right? What's going to happen? Is my team going to win? Because we don't know. We don't know the outcome. We don't know. And so when they do win, it's so exciting, right? And of course, when they lose, it's so <laughs> devastating, but have you ever watched a game where it was, you, know, you couldn't, living here, a lot of times we have to watch them long after they've been played, and you're watching the game, and you already know the outcome? It's just not the same, is it? It's like, yeah, I know we win. 
And it doesn't matter if you're behind up to the last 10 seconds of the game. If you know the finish, you don't stress. It's like, yeah, I know we win, right? I know we win. I'm not stressed because I know the outcome. Well, that's what the resurrection does for us, right? Uh, Life doesn't have to be stressful because we know how it ends. Here's the good news. COVID-19 does not win. Amen. Right? In the end, we overcome COVID-19. It may take us 15 more years, but we're going to win, right? Because Jesus wins, right? Or if you're interested in politics, here's the good news. The Democrats don't win. Neither do the Republicans. Ha! Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. And whatever happens with politics here and now in the end, Jesus overcomes all of them, even the Republicans and Democrats. Wow, amen, hallelujah for that, right? Right, Jesus wins. We don't have to stress out because the victory guarantees that we win. So, so let's not get so caught up. Let's not lose sight of the resurrection like the disciples did here. They lost the hope that they had because they could only see Jesus' death and they could not see the resurrection. Right? And it caused them unnecessary stress and distress. So then things shift. So that's uh, 22 and 23. Then things seem to shift uh, quickly. And uh, it seems like uh, Matthew's just kind of throwing these stories together. It's like, well, I don't know where these fit. In fact, I read some commentators who said that. They said, well, Matthew, you know, most, for most of the book, he's very organized and he lays things out with a clear order. But in chapter 17 here, it's like he just had leftovers and he just kind of threw them together because they didn't fit. But we'll see in a minute that these, thing, these two pieces actually do fit very closely. But it seems kind of random. Uh, they were greatly dis- distressed, and when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? So major shift in focus from Jesus' mission to the temple and to this temple tax. Um, and as I said, it, it brings this question, brings into focus Jesus' relationship to the temple. Who is Jesus in relationship to the temple in Jerusalem? And I love that Jesus here shows himself as a very gentle teacher. Um, uh, and this, these tax collectors, and again, these are not the tax collectors like Levi was a tax collector. They were probably volunteers who, uh, whose job was to go around and collect this temple tax. And if you, if you actually went to the temple, you would pay it at the temple. But because most people couldn't travel uh, all the time to the temple... Uh, they had special people who had collected. And, uh, and so they want to know, does Jesus pay the tax? And while most people did, uh, it was not actually a requirement. And there were some groups that didn't. So the Sadducees didn't pay the temple tax. Uh, the Essenes, uh, who are kind of extremist uh, radicals, they only paid it once in their whole life. Um, poor people were exempted. Interestingly, rabbis were exempted. Uh, so Jesus maybe didn't pay it because he was a rabbi. But the tax officials come and they ask, what about Jesus? Does he pay the tax? Well, it's interesting, Peter's answer. Peter doesn't go, hmm, I'm not sure. Let me go ask Jesus. Right? He doesn't do that. He shouts out, yes, he does. Right? Because Peter is a gung-ho Jewish guy, and he's convinced, oh, I paid the tax. Surely Jesus does. Why wouldn't he? Right? Jesus is a devout Jew, 
Jesus is serious about his religion. He's serious about his faith. Surely, Jesus pays the tax. He says, yes, absolutely, he pays that tax. Then he goes in the house, right? And Jesus, we don't know if Jesus just heard this conversation or if Jesus supernaturally knew, but Jesus says, uh, so Peter, about the tax thing, let's talk about that, right? And um, uh, especially if you were saw last week when Jesus is so frustrated with his disciples, he says, how long must I be with you? Sometimes it can feel and look a little bit like Jesus is a very impatient and hardcore teacher, right? And that he's, he's not gentle. But, but Jesus told us in Matthew eleven twenty nine, he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am harsh and brutal. Is that what he says? Because I'm going to beat you up if you don't listen. Is that what he says? No. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus really is a kind and patient and gentle teacher. And he wants to teach us. He wants to teach Peter, and he does it in a very uh, humble way. And, and Jesus doesn't say, Peter, why in the world did you tell that guy I pay taxes? I don't pay taxes. What's wrong with you? Right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes a very gentle approach, and he asks uh, Peter or Simon. Uh, Jesus calls him by his, his common name, Simon. Uh, and he says, um, uh, how does it work with the kingdoms of men? Right? Um, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Um, now this example actually doesn't work very well in, in, dem- in the democratic world because uh, it really only makes sense in a monarchy. Because in, in, in democracy, uh, uh, the kingdom belongs to the people. Right? And so most of us who have grown up in democratic societies were like, well, of course the king pays taxes. Everybody pays taxes, right? And uh, if you've been watching presidential elections, it's a big deal. Did you pay your taxes, right? Because uh, just because you're the president doesn't mean you're exempt, right? And the reason is that in, in democracy, uh, the, the kingdom really belongs to the people. And rulers are just representatives who carry out the will of the people, supposedly. Right? That's how it's supposed to work. And so in the West, in a, in a democracy, public lands are public. Right? Belongs to the people, not the king or the president. Right? I remember uh, when I was pastoring in Colorado, my girls were pretty little. They would tell people, my dad owns the church. Because right? I was the pastor. My dad owns the church. So you better be careful. Because my dad owns the church. Right? Uh, but actually, we know it's not true, Right? Um, and, and, and in the West, uh, the king or the president, well, the president, the prime minister doesn't own the country. He's a representative. But in a monarchy, the kingdom does belong to the king. And uh, especially in Jesus' day, the kingdom belonged to the king by right of conquest. Right? So kings don't get voted on. Kings don't rise to power because everybody likes them. No, they rise to power because they killed all their enemies. Right? They, they, they conquer uh, the lands and they take it for theirs. And so what's conquered belongs to them. And those conquered people must pay tribute or taxes to the king. And if he doesn't, he'll bring his army and he'll destroy you. Right? So his question is, who pays? Uh, the king's family or others? Well, of course, in Peter, like we would say, well, 
hmm, I'm not sure. Doesn't the, doesn't the king pay taxes? Well, for Peter, is easy. Easy question. Well, of course, uh, the king's family doesn't pay taxes because it belongs to them. It's theirs. They possess it. He's the lord of the land, so he doesn't pay taxes. Uh, but those who are conquered, they're the ones who pay taxes. Right? So let's change the illustration a little because maybe we don't quite connect with this. Let's change it to the way it would, maybe how Jesus would have put this in our modern world. Right? We can change it this way. He could have said, who pays for a meal at the local restaurant? The owner of the restaurant or the customers? Right? It was the, you know, I'm sure you probably go to similar, you know, the same restaurants around Chiang Mai and you've got these family businesses. And I've been at, at these restaurants when the family comes in and they sit down and the servers all bring them plates of food and they, the family eats dinner there, right? They've got to eat somewhere. Why not eat at your own restaurant? And you know what? Those people don't pay. Can you believe it? Right? They don't get a bill. They just walk up and leave. Like, what is wrong with them? Well, of course they don't because it belongs to them. Right? They're the owners of the restaurant. But, of course, I, as a customer, I get a bill, right? And I pay, right? That's how it works. So, so Jesus is applying this to himself in the temple. And he doesn't spell it out in great detail here, but it's implied. Uh, when, when Peter says, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. The sons are exempt, right? So this is applied to Jesus in the temple. What is Jesus saying here? Who owns the temple? Well, not the priest, right? Just like the preacher doesn't own the church, neither did the priest own the temple. Who's the owner of the temple? God, right? God is the owner. It was built for him. It was built to him. All that's given, all all that's brought, even the tax is offered in worship to God because it's his, right? It is to him. It is to his glory. And it's for the purpose of worshiping him. And here Jesus makes this amazing claim. He says, I am the, he doesn't say it right out, right? But he implies that I am the son of God. Why would I pay the temple tax, right? In other words, Jesus is saying here, I am, I am a family of the owner. And in that statement, Jesus claims equality to God. He's saying, look, the temple, and if we take this out to its logical conclusion, what Jesus is saying here is, Look, the temple, the worship of the temple is ultimately directed to my Father and to me. Right? I'm the recipient of its worship. Why would I pay taxes? I'm the Lord over the temple. I am master over the temple. And so his argument is that, of course, he's under no obligation to pay. He is exempt because the temple belongs to him. Right? And it is, it, is, it is a very direct claim to deity. It is a bold claim of Jesus, right? I'm at the level of God here, and the temple belongs to me, and it is for my worship, for worship of me. Um, and so Jesus doesn't make this declaration publicly, but he's careful about making these kind of claims or statements to the broader crowd. But he makes it to a disciple, to P- Peter, who's already acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, Son of the living God. He says, do you get what that means? That means that I am actually Lord over the temple even. I am greater than the temple. I am greater than the temple. And of course I wouldn't uh, have an expectation or be uh, required to pay that tax. Uh, 
Um, and Jesus doesn't talk about it in this passage. But let me just talk about the three ways that Jesus fulfills the function of the temple. Right? Jesus is greater than the temple, but Jesus also fulfills the very function and role of the temple in three super important ways. First off, uh, and, and, it, and this goes back to verses 22 and 23. Remember I said Jesus talking about his mission seems somewhat disconnected from talk about the temple tax, but actually they go together because Jesus' mission fulfilled the role and purpose of the temple. Right? He completed, he did in his own mission uh, what the temple was created and designed for. But he completed it. So what three ways did he do that? Well, first, um, uh, in providing atonement. Right? For the Jewish people, the only place they could get atonement, where their sins could be removed from them, where their sins could be covered or propitiated, where God's wrath could be dealt with, was by taking a, blood, a, a bull or a lamb and sh- shedding its blood, and by the blood of that lamb, their sins would be dealt with. But of course, Jesus is going to the cross so that by his own blood, our sin would be atoned for, covered. Hebrews chapter 9, in fact, I'm going to cite three passages from Hebrews because uh, Hebrews talks about how Jesus fulfills and completes the ministry of the temple. And uh, we, could, we could do a study through the book of Hebrews this morning. It would only take us about 29 hours. So I'm just going to summarize, right? Summarize. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's the temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So a temple not on earth, but the temple in heaven. He entered once for all to hold places. Not by means of the blood of bulls, uh, I'm sorry, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if those things cleanse us in the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will these purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, this is language of atonement in the temple. And Jesus' death uh, makes the temple actually obsolete, right? He deals with sin fully and completely through his one offering of his life. And so that from, from the time Jesus died on the cross onward, there was no need to offer uh, lambs or bulls or goats. There was no need for their blood because Jesus' blood was sufficient. Second way Jesus fulfills the function of the temple is he gives us access to the very presence of God. Remember I said the point of the temple was that God's presence was there. And if you wanted to get really close to God, if you wanted to draw as close as possible as you could to the glorious presence of God, you would go to the temple and you would stand before that curtain, that holy place, and you would know just beyond that veil is the glorious presence of God. Right? And it would be, uh, it would be exciting. 
But notice what Jesus did for us in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places. And he's not talking here about the earthly temple. He's talking about the temple in heaven. Uh, and we have confidence entered by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Here's an amazing thing. The Jews could, had to stop at the curtain. But he says Jesus has actually made a way through the curtain. Through the curtain. Right? We don't stop at the curtain anymore. Now we have access all the way through the curtain into the very presence of God. Right? There's no hindrance, no obstacle, nothing that stands before us and the glorious presence of God. As he's made this living way open for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Right? We enter through the work of Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his person. We have access, a door, through that curtain into the very presence of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near Draw near to what? Draw near to God. Draw near to that glorious presence. See, we don't need to go to some temple in Jerusalem to draw near to God. Um, We don't need to, to go to some place where God's presence dwells because Jesus has opened a way for us. And through Christ, we have direct access into the very heavenly throne of God. And, and that doesn't mean that when we die... I mean it, does mean, it does mean when we die, we go into Jesus' presence, God's presence. But it means more than that. It means right now, through the work of Christ, we have access to the glorious presence of God. Right? Isn't that amazing? Right? Amazing. People in Jesus' day would travel thousands of kilometers, maybe for a once-in-a-lifetime experience of coming into God's presence. You and I have immediate access continually. Right? Uh, do we take advantage of it? Right? Does it really matter to us? Uh, do we say like, like David, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Guess what? What David longed for, we have already received. Right? There never needs to be a moment in our life when we would say, oh, I wish I could just dwell near God. It's available to us 24-7, right? day and night, any time we can go through that curtain through Christ and we can stand in the very glorious presence of God, right? who is our access. Third function of the temple was that of prayer and worship. So here's the thing. If we can go through that curtain into the very presence of God, what is prayer like for us? Of course, the Jews knew that they could pray anywhere and that God could hear. Like, if you wanted really God like, to really hear you, you'd go to the temple so that you had like a direct line, right? Um, well, well, Jesus is our direct line. Our direct line. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Right? We can go to God anytime in prayer and know with confidence we come to the very throne of grace and we can ask him anything and he hears us. He, he is tuned into us. Right? God never says, well, you're so far away. It's like I can't get a good signal. Wi-Fi is bad, <laughs> right? Am I getting a good internet signal? No, no, we, we have direct access, face-to-face. And so we pray through Christ of the Father who hears us. And we can find grace to help in our time of need, right? Um, so beyond that, and I don't, we don't have time to talk about it, beyond that, we actually are his temple, right? So Jesus fulfills the temple, and it doesn't mean, and when Jesus did... Uh, do away with the temple in Jerusalem. In 70 AD it was destroyed. There is no temple uh, for the Jews. But, but there is still a temple. We are the new temple. First Peter 2 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So, so not only do we pray to God, but we worship in his presence, right? Uh, what an amazing gift. What an amazing gift. Uh, you know, the resurrection means that one day we will be in heaven. But one of the problems we have is that we see all of that as only future. Right? And we fail to see how much we have access to that God here and now. And my question is, if we don't really take advantage of that here and now, how much does eternity with God really matter to us? Right? Like if it really doesn't, matter if we draw into his presence now? Why do we want to go to heaven? Unfortunately, too often we only want to go to heaven because um, we, we, we like the benefits. <laughs> you know, We know we won't be sick there. We, we know we get united with our loved ones that have died. And we're kind of missing the point. Right? We're missing the real point of what Jesus came to accomplish. He came to bring us into the very presence of God. And we have access to that here and now. Right? So next time you go to your prayer closet and pray, uh, when you pray, do you, do you picture God being light years away in some realm of heaven, infinitely far away? Or do you know that God dwells in your heart? Right? I mean, he's here. And all we have to do is turn inward to our heart and our soul. And we, we will never be closer to God. Right? Not in all eternity. Right? We will never be closer to God. Uh, he is there. Right? Uh, and we are, we are that temple where God dwells by his spirit. One last thing. We've got to finish with the whole fish story. Right? Um, uh, how, so Jesus says this, so I don't, I don't have to pay taxes. Uh, I'm exempt. I'm the living God who's enthroned in heaven above. Uh, I am your access to God. Of course I don't have to pay the temple tax. But notice what it says. It says, however, or in the Greek the word is but. But, so as not to give offense, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish comes up, and out's going to come the tax, go pay the tax. Go pay the tax. It's amazing. 
Jesus lays down his rights to, to show love and compassion and grace, right? Jesus could have said, tell those guys, the Son of God's here. He doesn't need to pay that tax. Right? No, he says, no, so as not to give offense. Uh, and he sends Peter off on a fishing trip. Uh, strange story. Uh, and it doesn't actually say that Peter went and did this, but we assume he was obedient, and he did, and he paid the tax. It's a great reminder that God provides, right? Um, but the real point here is that um, Jesus is an amazing example of humility and grace. Jesus does not lobby for his rights. Now, he says, so that we don't offend. That's a little bit unusual because actually Jesus was quite good at this. <laughs> Jesus was always offensive. And most of the time, he does not apologize. Most of the time when Jesus offends, he does not back down. Right? Why does he back down here? I think the main difference is this. Where Jesus does not back down, it's when it's related to truth about the kingdom. Right? When he says Lord, uh, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he doesn't back down from that. Right? Uh, the other reasons why Jesus offends, he doesn't back down from. But where it's only a matter of his personal rights, Jesus gladly surrenders those rights for the sake of his message, right? to not offend, to not turn away needlessly those uh, who needed to hear the message. Right? Uh, and, and, and it's not a big deal because God provides. Right? He can lay down his rights. He can pay that tax because God will supply that need. That's um, a good example for us. Uh, do we... Uh, lay down our rights? Do we give up our rights so that we can be good witnesses for the sake of the name of Jesus? Right? And the reality is we do have rights. Uh, we do have rights to be treated a certain way, to be spoken to with respect. Right? Uh, and how does it feel when people don't treat us the way we think we should be treated? Are we good with that? Right? Are we okay with that when people disrespect us or trample us or um, treat us in ways that are dishonoring. How do you feel about that? Well, it makes me mad, right? It makes me mad. I remember one time, I don't remember where I was, but I think it was either a doctor's office or some service place. Maybe it was a restaurant, I'm not sure. But uh, there was a long queue waiting to be waited on. And you know, I put my name on the list. And, and I'm watching as all the people in the waiting room are getting called before me. And it's like, I, that person came after me, right? And I feel like I have a right. I have a right to, you know, not cut in the front of the line, but I have a right to get, you know, where I am in the queue. And one after one after one, people, and I just got more and more mad. I go up and say to them, is my name on the list? Why haven't I gotten taken care of yet, right? Why? Because I have my rights, right? You're ignoring me, and that's not acceptable, right? Do you like being ignored? I hate being ignored. Because right? I have my rights. You have to treat me a certain way. But Jesus says, no, no, we, we, we can lay down our rights right? for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his name. Right? And, and here's the thing. When, when we understand that, that we are the temple of the living God, and in the end we win, right? it makes giving up our, our rights a lot easier. Right? We can tell that people, yeah, you may not, you may, you may not let, give me, you know, service now, but just wait, just wait till eternity. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm going to get my way then, right? You'll see, 
right? Because God will settle it. God will bring justice. And, and most, most of all, God will bring to us his grace. Because really, we think we deserve so much. But really what we deserve is his wrath and judgment. Right? We are sinners. We are all sinners. And it is only by the grace of Jesus who gave himself, who shed his own blood to give us access to the Father, not because we deserve it, not because we have a right to God's presence, but by his grace, right? by his incredible grace. He has given us access and he has made us a temple of the living God. It's by grace. So we can lay down our rights. We can serve. We can be like Jesus and be humble, right? Even when we're mistreated. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.